welcome to Speaking of Sex with the Pleasure Mechanics. I'm Chris from PleasureMechanics.com, and on this podcast, we have soulful yet explicit, honest and compassionate conversations about sex, pleasure, joy, and love. Come on over to PleasureMechanics.com, where you will find all of the resources that we have been generating for you since 2006. We are celebrating our 15th year in our Pleasure Mechanics uniforms, and we have been dedicating our lives to generating resources for you to explore more pleasure, joy, and connection. You'll find it all at PleasureMechanics.com, and you can get started for free by joining our free online course, The Erotic Essentials, at PleasureMechanics.com free. If you've been with us for many years and you love the show, Go to pleasuremechanics.com slash love and you will find ways to go deeper with us and expand your capacity for pleasure, joy, and connection. Today, we are in conversation with Meg John Barker, a brilliant and prolific thinker and writer who offers us accessible and digestible ways to metabolize the really big ideas about sexuality, gender, queer theory, and how we can all get free from the constraining frameworks of the past. Meg John Barker is a very prolific and generous thinker, and so in the show notes page you will find many links to their blog, printable zines, their podcast, and more, so you can continue this conversation way beyond this episode. In today's episode, we are focusing on their newest offering, Sexuality, a Graphic Guide. This is one in a series of collaborative graphic books that break down really big ideas into a joyful, illustrated adventure through ideas and frameworks that will transform how you think about sex, how you approach sexuality as a whole, and how you embody your sexuality in your day-to-day lives. So if you are curious about sexuality, and I know you are because you are here, you will definitely want to check out these books and learn along with them and let us know what ideas and frameworks really jump out for you and what you want to hear more about on this show. You will find us at pleasuremechanics.com and we love to hear from you. So as you read these books, please let us know what resonates. Without further ado, here is my conversation with Meg John Barker. Meg John Barker, welcome to Speaking of Sex with the Pleasure Mechanics. Thank you for having me. Can you please introduce yourself and the work you do in this world? Absolutely. So yeah, my name's Meg John Barker, or MJ for short, and um, I'm now a full-time writer for the last couple of years. So I write um, a graphic guide series of comic books about sex, gender, relationships, mental health, and those kind of things. And I also write my own zines and uh, blog posts on the topics and I've done a bit of podcasting too um, and I also write what I call anti-self-help books we might get into that later um, so yes. all kinds of writing about sex gender and relationships um, my backgrounds I've been an academic and an activist and a therapist for a couple of decades each um, but now I'm focusing <laughs> but now I'm focusing full-time on writing but my writing draws on you know kind of the knowledge from all of those areas and also quite a lot from kind of Buddhist thought as well. Mm, I love that. You're such a prolific and generous thinker, writer, podcaster, resource generator. 
How would you name the vision and values that weave all of this work together? Mm. So I think one really, imp- I mean, what, what drives me really is the, the image of myself, you know, back in my late teens, early 20s, looking at the self-help book, you know, of the bookshop and, and kind of desperation, wanting to understand, you know, the stuff I struggled with, my mental health, wanting to understand relationships, sexuality, gender, and finding very little there that was helpful. And so my real vision is to, is to weave together all the things I've learned from kind of going in all these different directions for answers, you know, in terms of therapy, spirituality, academic understandings, activist communities, trying to bring those all together um, and make them really accessible and engaging for people. Um, that's that's really what I'm all about. Um, so getting them across in a way that people can kind of hear and understand. Again, like the broad sweep of people. So not just writing, say, for a queer audience, but trying to write for everyone um, as much as possible to kind of get these ideas across. Mm-hmm. Mm. And this format of the graphic guide. So your new book, Sexuality, a graphic guide. It's not your first of this format of Mm. using a graphic novel like format to cover really big ideas and theory and make them more accessible. What do you like about this format? (laughs) Well, everything like I've been a comics geek (laughs) since I don't, you know, before I can remember. So when I was asked to write a comic book about queer, which was the first one, it was just like a gift, you know? <laughs> and um, mm-hmm. I mean, I love it. You know, one of the feedback I get is that for a lot of people, the visual, you know, it just, there's people who just cannot read a, like a text, a long textual book or even a long blog post or article, you know, but they can really engage with something that's got words and pictures. Um, and we've got increasingly creative with these books, me and Jules, the illustrator, and Kira, the editor, as we've gone along. Uh, so now they, they do have kind of a story to them with, with characters who go through arcs during the book. And so I think that, again, is another level of engagement that instead of just reading this factual book, even with pictures, you're also kind of engaging with a bunch of characters and wanting to find out what happens to them. So kind of, you know, kind of um, troubling the binary of kind of factual book and fiction book and beginning to make it a bit of a kind of mashup of both. I love it so much. And so in this book, one of the organizing visual metaphors is a haunted house being explored by a Scooby-Doo like squad of friends. Yeah. So so why (laughs) did you pick this imagery? Um, What are some of the ghosts that haunt this house? And what are you setting out to do as we explore this? spook house that really should be a playground perhaps well that's it we play with this again binary you know with with sexuality which is that on the one hand you know so many of us carry huge amounts of trauma in this area Mm. a lot of fear a lot of shame around sexuality at the same time that you know pleasure and the erotic you know can be this incredibly credible things both for our own kind of individual growth and also you know as people like Audrey Lord have suggested in terms of getting us into justice for all um so you know how do we how do we deal with that and I had this image of you know well it's like it's a haunted house or is it a fun house you know it's kind of like the ghost train at the fun fair but it's also maybe the the house of fun depending on how you see it and, and probably for most of us it's both and um I guess I was playing with ideas, you know, all the books have a bit of a visual theme that can be, you know, a little funny and playful. Um, and what was it going to be for this book? And I had the Rocky Horror Show in mind, you know, sort of Brad and Janet getting to this this house of sex and learning all this stuff and, you know, being very confronted 
um, but also intrigued by what they find there. But I didn't want, you know, kind of young white middle class kind of heterosexual couple as the <laughs> as the only characters in the book. Um, and that sort of led me to think, well, Scooby Doo kind of has the the sort of Fred and Daphne um, who are a bit like Brad and Janet, but they also have, you know, a couple of much queerer, I would say, characters and a dog. Um, so it was kind of like, let's let's think about the Scooby-Doo gang or, you know, again, a, hopefully an even more diverse version of the Scooby-Doo gang going through the book. And that way we can explore all these characters learning about sex and sexuality, you know, two coming from a much more normative framework and two coming from a queerer framework, but still struggling with how do we actually do this? How do we relate to each other? How do we understand ourselves, you know? Mm. It's so good. And there's this series where this squad of friends keeps kind of pulling off the masks of the monsters. Like, mm. What's really behind all of this struggle? Is it the patriarchy? Is it body supremacy? Mm. Um, how do you think about this interrelationship between the broad context of history that informs our most intimate realms? Mm. How does that function for you? Yeah, well, I really see this project, um, and, and uh, this is kind of a linking theme through the books as well, this sense that there's, there's been this project for the last, you know, couple of hundred years, you know, starting really in sort of Victorian times of trying to delineate normal from abnormal when it comes to gender and sexuality and relationships as well and mental health. And read it you know I'm not a historian so I have to kind of caveat it this is not like a, a really you know deep historical understanding but from what I've read my understanding is that this project of trying to delineate normal from abnormal in this kind of scientific way um, really came about due to a, a certain form of capitalism colonialism white supremacy eugenics movement you know all of that was going on that time. And really it was about justifying how to treat some people as less valuable, you know, and or exploitable and or, ex, you know, disposable, colonizable. Um, and so our understandings of sexuality now, that's, that's the history, that's what they're rooted in. Um, this whole project of kind of coming up with these sexology books of all the deviant forms of sexuality, you know, was really rooted in, in this kind of idea of like, you know, the, the working classes being inferior and being sexual in problematic ways, for example, or, you know, those, those others over there in another country, again, being, you know, sexual in problematic ways, but that wrapped up with this whole kind of idea of presenting them as, as, le as morally lesser or intellectually lesser, and again, you know, or, or closer to animals or closer to infants, you know, and it's, it's all about um, justifying the exploitation um, of people and and yeah again treating some bodies and lives as disposable as exploitable and then those big cultural projects get metabolized down to our most inner voices and so they almost feel normal or natural and sometimes mm. it takes a book like this to kind of remind us of the framework of our individual lives yeah um yeah, the, I mean, the way Alex, um, and Alexi and Taffy, who I also write with, and I really see it is that we can't, we can't get away from um, the wider culture and all those messages, you know, but and all and the, all the kind of systems and structures that operate through us, and we also can't get away from the sort of developmental or intergenerational trauma um, that we carry. So all of that comes into our relationship to our gender or our sexuality or how we do relationships and it needs that kind of um understanding of what of all of that um and and really feeling all of that 
um, is just is a vital part of it. So, you know, while it might seem that these topics like sex, gender, mental health relationships are quite individual, you know, and it's just about finding out how do we want to do it. I, I just don't think we can separate it from this much wider stuff that's going on. And if we engage with it sort of fully, it will lead us back there. It will lead us back to these bigger questions of injustice, um, climate crisis, all of these things. Yeah. And we experience it together. There's this interpersonal freedom together with this very intimate freedom um, to ask for what you want and to create the world for as what we want it to be. Mm. Um, we're starting to really weave these understandings together. Um, what are some of the specific frameworks covered in this book that you most want people to explore to be more free? Yeah. So I think, you know, a big one is moving away from binaries, which again is a really key underpinning of, of all of the writing I do but the binaries and sexuality you know people immediately think of sort of gay straight binary and there's a whole chapter really unpacking that you know human sexuality cannot just be captured in are you gay or are you straight you know for one thing it's a spectrum and for another thing there's a lot of other spectrums around sexuality not just that one um, mm -hmm. but also like normal abnormal functional dysfunctional there's a lot of these binaries through which we understand our sexualities that are really uh, really hurtful and, and as I said you know located in this this problem problematic history but also I think something that you know you share as well um, this sense of it hurting everybody so it's you know obviously we have to sort of pay attention to power and who benefits from these systems of understanding sexuality and who doesn't but there's also a piece that the the sort of norm the people who are trying to fit into the norms of sexuality are often being extremely hurt by them you know that they're often they often do have other aspects to their sexuality they're feeling they have to hide due to fear and shame there's a, a you know they're spending a lot of their lives often not being able to um, engage sexually in ways that they might find really fulfilling there's a lot of fear around sort of straying outside of the norm um, and yeah like a lot of non-consensual stuff happening as well because the norms are you know so so non-consensual <laughs> you know those who are kind of within them are really lucky if they they get away without having some pretty non-consensual sexual experiences so you know, while, mm. while it's quite obvious that marginalized people in terms of sexuality are deeply hurt by the norms around sexuality, I think it's also the case that those who fall within the norms are also really hurt by them. So true and so real. There's an incredible page in the book where you kind of show the classic dysfunctions and it's up on this kind of, kind of chalkboard like graphic. <laughs> yeah. And it just like kind of my jaw dropped, you know, after decades in this field, just really unpacking it to the level of reminding us that all of these dysfunctions themselves are couched in the expectation. So the dysfunction of erectile dysfunction that I hear from all the time mm -hmm. from this audience, right? Like that's an understanding of your body and how your body should work, quote, as a man. And we can get free from that yeah, and get back to how your body is in this moment and honoring it. So how do we help one another get free? We often hear from folks who mm. are aching for something new, aching for something, um, uh, for a new framework to think about their sexuality, but they are situated in relationships of all kinds, uh, their culture, their friends, their families, their lovers, mm. uh, who may still be pretty wedded to some um, other belief systems. So how do we kind of nudge one another along in this conversation <laughs> and get free yeah. but stay in relationship with one another? And it, and it is hard, I think, because I think there's, there's sort of a hope out there that we could just tweak 
what we've got you know we could just shift a little bit you know the norms of doing sex and, and gender and relationships and everything and you know find, find our way that way you know and I really don't think so I think the system's broken that we need to start mm you know, from a very different starting point. Mm -hmm. um, so on the one hand, you know, that's incredibly confronting and a really big ask. But at the sa same time, it is rather simple, you know, that, and in one of the chapters in the book, you know, I suggest again, going sort of back to Audrey Lord of like, what if we started with sexuality just from the starting point of what makes me feel most alive, you know, or what brings, what brings me joy or however you want to word it. Um, you know and just go with that and it's like it doesn't again the answer doesn't have to be something that people even think of as sexual like it's so your answer might be that all of those things that are usually seen as sex do nothing for you as you know many in the ace community uh, but there's other things you know that that make you feel alive and it's it's just about following those and then I guess if you're thinking again about sort of do I want to do some form of solo sex it would be a, a, about starting there just you know discovering your fantasies discovering your body from that position of you know what what makes me feel really great um what gives me pleasure or aliveness or you know not and not necessarily even just positive emotions but you know let, let's make this this creative kind of exploration and, and then the same as that having that as a starting point to being sexual with another person you know where, where's that overlap between you that's that's something you might like to explore together and is the one and it's also totally fine if there isn't if the only thing that you really love doing together is building furniture or you know sort of oh, when I saw that bookshelf <laughs> right I also I love that line you know not to learn when she says yeah. that building a bookshelf or writing a poem can be just as satisfying as turning to one another's naked bodies and yeah uh, I saw that group of friends kind of all in their own pleasures and mm. there's something very um there's a somatic elicitation that comes with the graphic novel where you see these characters that you've come to love go through this journey and at the end there's a lot of joy and freedom and connection depicted mm. um, of mm. them kind of enjoying their bodies and themselves and their relationships on their own terms yeah um, and it's very visionary in a very subtle and gentle way <laughs> oh, thank you that's uh, that's wonderful to hear you know it, was, it felt I think Jules and I had the most fun depicting these characters you know and having that sense of like this is what can happen you know um and yeah just really wanting to free people all the way and that, that's the thing I suppose is you can't sort of do it half measures um you know I, th I think again I learned so much from the ace community that you know sex can't be consensual until it's really okay not to have it you know and that's that's where we need to be getting to with people and and it's just so many people are still have this idea that well I should be sexual in this in this relationship or I, I should be sexual as an individual and until you really know that it's okay not to like 100% like there's nothing in that relationship contingent on you having a certain kind of sex with that person there's nothing in you like making you feel like you have to be sexual how can we be how can we be having pleasurable sex and how can we having consensual sex you know that's that is a big shift that's a radical shift let's talk about those shoulds for a second because mm. we often focus on shame and there's so much to talk about there but the shoulds come right after that of all the ways that we should be and in the sex education field, um, we can often play into that and create these aspirational lists of eight different kinds of orgasms and <laughs> all of the ways we should be sexy and kinky and yeah. poly and free. But how do we not do that? And how do you approach this realm of 
um, what we're, we keep saying, like, how do we help one another be free? Um, mm-hmm. How do we make that not self-helpy? Mm-hmm. What's wrong with this self-help field? And what are some of the ways you're exploring kind of being a resource for folks yeah. without shooting on them? Oh my gosh, this is, yeah, such at the heart of what I'm doing because it's so easily done, isn't it? I, I've written quite a bit about um, this idea that as soon as we sort of manage to liberate ourselves from one set of shoulds, you know, a normative, say a heteronormative one, then we, we might well find a community where there's just another set of shoulds, you know, kink community, mm. kink community has them, ace community has them, poly community has them, you know, um, it's just really hard for people not to do that, you know, and again, yes, absolutely, as a writer, so hard not to um, replace one with another. I think the one we explore in this book is, you know, that move from sex negativity to sex positivity, you know, and the sex, again, sort of conscious sexuality and sex positive movements so easily fall into this other set of shoulds about, you know, you should be, I don't know, swinging from the chandeliers or, you know, you certainly should be yep. sexual, you know, <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, you, you should, you should be okay to have sex with multiple people, you know, it's just really, really hard not to do that. Um, and yeah, the, the vision of sort of anti-self-help that I had was, you know, moving away f- from the self-help notion that there's something wrong with you that needs fixing and really, mm. really turning the lens out on the wider culture. You know, there's something wrong with the world you know, that definitely needs fixing. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, these the, a lot of the pain that we have is because of that. It's because of these messages and the ways they've been transmitted through our families, but also through workplaces and education and laws and medicine and everything. Um, So yeah, but it it becomes really challenging because you're writing as an individual to another individual reader. And of course there is that kind of maybe even desperation, but certainly yearning for a set of answers of something we can do, you know, individually when we're carrying so much yeah, fear and loss and shame and all this other really painful stuff. So I suppose it's trying to really give that sense that different things work for different people, you know, mm-hmm. that it's about finding your path. It's about trusting yourself, learning to trust yourself deeply. That's something in you kind of does know the way that you need to go. So not giving people that again, like the, you know, five top tips to orgasm or, you know, um, any, any kind of, yeah, almost like not giving a map, but helping somebody learn how to make their own map, you know, of the terrain mm. or something like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Can you tell me a little bit, you are such a great collaborator. Mm. Um, it seems like you really like working in collaboration with other brilliant folks. Can you tell me a little bit about the work you do with Alex Ian Taffy? Yeah. So this is such a key collaboration for me. We've been working together ooh, 15 16 17 years I think now um and yeah I mean it means a lot you know I think I want to walk the walk as well and uh, you know we are interconnected and so to write alone again it it somehow puts across this a bit this individualistic you know you can be this individual expert I really want to challenge that I mean the graphic Mm -hmm. guides are all about trying to put forward other voices than my own really every page is almost like an invitation of like please go and read this person's stuff because it's amazing you know and um with with Alex what we do is weave together so many different approach we come to a very different a very similar place but you know my background's in psychology and theirs is much more in kind of humanities 
Um, I've trained as an existential therapist. They've trained as systemic. Um, I'm drawing on Buddhist ideas. They're drawing on pagan ideas. You know, it's like mm. in all, you know, they're much more engaged with more sort of disability justice activism, anti-racist activism. Mine's been more in the kind of sexuality, gender, relationships and mental health area. So it's just, yeah. And, and they're also somatically trained, which I think is really important. So they really bring that embodied piece to our work. And it's so much like the whole is greater than the sum of its parts there. It's like, instead of me feeling I have to go and get expertise and knowledge on everything, which of course nobody can do, I can come into dialogue, you know, with somebody who has a different set of wisdoms and a different set of practices, and we can like weave them together. Um, and also that really gives in, in the books, I think, a sense of that different things work for different people, which is so important. I think people really struggle to fully believe that you know there is that sense of oh I should find the right answers and follow them but you know throughout our books Alex and I will give examples about what's worked for us and how how gender and sexuality and things work for us to show that it really is different you know for different people um yeah yeah here at Pleasure Mechanics we kind of say like the best we can do is invite you into exploration mm. invite you to explore with curiosity and see what is real and true for you right now um, and I think this is especially true as we come into our bodies and our experience of our bodies. You mentioned spectrums earlier and um, from the somatic place, we're also aware that there's so many spectrums of how we experience and perceive the world mm-hmm. and how much of our sexuality and relationships are filtered through our very specific being. Mm-hmm. Um what are some of the practices that you use to explore pleasure, joy, and connection and to stay, uh, to stay afloat in extraordinary years like this? Oh. You drawn? oh, yeah, it really has been super hard. I've been blogging all the way through it. I've been on a big trauma journey myself mm. this year. So I've been working with a really good trauma-informed therapist and doing reading an awful lot about trauma, but also putting a lot into practice. I would say I've slowed down a lot. Um, like mm-hmm. a key practice for me is is a kind of continual, you know, check-in, how I'm doing. And, and a really big component for me has been plurality, uh, which is something I write about a lot. In fact, I've got a whole book that people can download for free about it because I've been writing so much about it this year. I realized I had a whole book. Can you worth. tell me more about that word? Yeah, plurality or being plural. Um, so it draws on... You know, some therapists like um, internal family systems therapy um, and a bunch of other therapists which see parts work as being really valuable, like this sense of like a self being lots of different parts. And so we can say a part of me feels this, but another part Mm. of me feels that. Um, And then there's also, you know, quite a big community of people who identify as plural and as being a system um, and who, you know, really experience the world in that way, which is very much how I do so I'm tr- again I'm trying to weave together some of the therapeutic literature with also what I'm learning from people from a much more lived experience perspective um, and it, it relates to my practices because most most of them are like plural practices like I will slow down and try and check in like how are these different parts of me feeling right now um, having that kind of team check-in of like what what do we want to do next and has each part kind of had their needs met today um, 
and, and you know actual self-talk like you know talking between the parts is is being incredibly useful from a trauma perspective it's also about kind of healing those traumatized parts and bringing the disowned parts you know welcoming them and bringing them forward the parts that you felt like you couldn't be um in your life uh, mm. so yeah I do a lot of a lot of that and trying to sort of model that by by writing about all of this as dialogue between different parts and putting out zines where the different parts are depicted so that people can see like how does this actually work in practice um is that's a really important part of my work going forward can you talk a little bit about the understanding of plurality within relationships and mm. how does an understanding of plurality allow us not to fragment ourselves yet show up for relationality um, honoring mm. how we show up differently with different people? Absolutely. I mean, I think it really helps that this was the first place I learned about this actually was um, mm. a, a friend of mine who sadly died, uh, Trevor Butt, was doing this research where he was asking people um, like how they were in different relationships like to almost like come up with character character traits of how they were and finding that you know in different relationships people would describe themselves completely differently like extrovert yeah. and introvert you know like um yeah like shy and outgoing all, all these different you know sort of angry and you know quiet and 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 but but across those relationships they were also saying they really felt they could be themselves so he was like, ah, oh, you know, like clearly we can be, feel like we're being ourselves and be very different people. Um, so I think it's incredibly helpful in relationships because I think often in relationships we have that sense that we are really dealing with some very different characters. You know, the, the person that a partner might be when they're being a bit childish and silly, you know, versus the person they might bring to an argument versus the person, you know, that they might be in a much more everyday context. Um, so yeah, I found that a lot of people say it's really helping their relationships now that they've got this language of like, oh, yes, a, a part of me is feeling this, a part of me is feeling that. And um, yeah, currently mm. I'm even working, you know, the attachment styles, um, that sort of sense that you can be securely attached or anxiously attached or sort of an angry avoidant or a kind of fearful avoidant. And I'm really working with this idea that we probably have all of them within us and that can be really helpful in relationships again to sort of name okay part of me is yearning you know for this with this person and really really craving and needy kind of towards them and, and another part is is quite angry with this person and and distrustful and wants to push them away and again the more conscious I think we can be of those multiple levels going on um for us the the, the better the relationships can be um so yeah that that's my sense of that, that again it's sort of about bringing it to consciousness and really recognizing you know whether it's like just like inside out you know the pixar movie of just you know everybody has these different emotional states and we could kind of imagine them as characters or whether we look at it through the lens of attachment style or or give the or give our parts names or however however it works for us it, it feels like a valuable thing not just in terms of personal growth but also for um, showing showing up as our entirety and relationship there's something just about honoring that we're big enough to feel it all and to yeah. hold it all yeah um and that we don't have to get locked into these fixed sense of identities and this is one of the great gifts you know that some of us were given through queer theory mm. um, some of us get through community and that you give through this book is this sense that we don't have to be locked into a specific identity of who we are but we get to explore mm -hmm. who we are emerging as 
um, and within the context of culture that's changing so rapidly. Mm. And sometimes we hear from people that they feel like culture is changing more quickly than they keep up with. How do you stay curious and how do you encourage others to stay curious about emergent culture, especially as we get a little older? Yeah, I think it's, I think we really need to take that seriously. I think, you know, it can, can kind of break down as this rather simplistic kind of intergenerational fights you know between older people mm. stuck in their ways and wanting things to be simple and younger people being snowflakes and coming up with a million different words you know and and it's so sad you know I don't think that gets to the real pain that's underneath a lot of that for people you know I think mm. when you get older and you look to a younger generation who are able to do things you couldn't do that's incredible that can be incredibly painful you know to think gosh if I had gone to school at this age, you know, I, I could have been, yeah, I could have been non-binary, you know, as a child, like, you know, that that's one for me. Right. Yeah, and um, right. yeah. Or like if I'd known that asexuality was a thing to the degree it is now, you know, how much of the really unwanted and even non-consensual sex I've had might I not have had, you know, I think it's so hard to confront all that. And I just, yeah, I'd love that that kind of generation who are, who are sort of, a bit backlash you know against what younger folks are doing around sexuality and gender could, could really interrogate you know what's going on and really feel those feelings mm. and you know ideally be liberated to sort of join in <laughs> to mm -hmm. some extent um but it's I can see why it's so hard because you know there's that sense of I've lived my whole life this way you know after, often these are my have been my survival strategies and it's really hard to put those down right um so yeah I think there's more to it than you know just railing against an older generation is trying to understand where that's coming from and again trying to understand where a younger generation might be coming from who are you know it's like one term after another because I think there's that real yearning to find you know who am I and what what does make sense of all of this and can I find a label that fits can I find a community where I belong and of course you know we even as we get more and more specific with those terms they still don't quite match our completely unique sense of our own sexuality it'd be great to get to a place where where we could like every day just say you know how I experience my sexuality today is this and really have that sense that it's okay that it might be different tomorrow and certainly quite likely will be a different in a year's time and 10 years but we still have that cultural notion that somehow we should be fixed you know and we should be able to put all these labels on ourselves and say this is me to the world and I'm never going to change you know um, so it, yeah, I can really see where that comes from as well. Mm. I want to ask you just, um, this is kind of just a very selfish personal question, but mm. I should get one. Um, yeah. how is your Buddhist studies? Uh, my child attends a Buddhist school, mm. um, and we've been kind of deep in, I, I feel like I dabble in Buddhism because I can't give myself over to it fully. Mm. Um, but I draw so much from it. I'm curious how your Buddhist studies and engagement have informed your understanding of sexuality and gender and self. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm really engaged with it, but I would still say there's a sort of a bit of reluctance around, yeah, like some of the stuff around sexuality and gender within a lot of Buddhism doesn't quite fit. And I, I kind of want it, I still want to bring it together with a lot of other wisdoms rather than it, you know, completely, um, mm -hmm. yeah, like just, just drawing on that, but it has been huge. The pluralism. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yes. Pluralism. But the practices, I, I mean, I've, I mostly follow Pema Chodron and that kind of Tibetan lineage that, that she's part of, I find 
that she really articulates it in a way that works for me. Um, and yeah, the, the practices for staying with uncomfortable feelings particularly seem vital, you know, personally, but also for this terrain. You know, I feel like, I mean, I think it, you know, might be different in the kind of worlds you, you engage with because you're obviously really somatically informed. But I think in a lot of sexuality worlds, there's no, there's none of that. It's very intellectual and activist. And there's just not this sense that in order to do this kind of work, we really have to learn how to stay with some very uncomfortable and difficult feelings um, in our communities and in ourselves. And how do we do that? We have to look beyond, you know, most of our activisms and most of the academic ideas, which are just so, so sort of in the head. <laughs> and, you know, they don't really, they don't really teach us how on earth we could stay with that stuff. And so I guess, yeah, sort of Buddhist. And why, like, why, yeah. why stay with the struggle? Why stay with the discomfort? What's there for us? Well, if we don't, our relationships are very limited, you know, I think, mm. and also we can carry on doing quite a lot of damage, um, yeah. you know, and I think, yeah, if we are to have the, the, you know, the tough conversations in our communities that are required, you know, about power and consent and the times we've hurt others and the times of others have hurt us rather than it just always being that, we fragment at those moments and you know that <laughs> if we're going to do that we are going to have to learn how to stay with with that level of discomfort um and how to speak our truth you know sort of even when it's hard for somebody else and hard for us um mm -hmm. so i think yeah that and, and when, when with sexuality you know we we kind of need to learn how to really tune into ourselves and our feelings because this this consent piece again it's often put across as quite simple you know, again, even in quite sort of conscious sexuality worlds that, that we that we would have this pretty easy insight into, you know, what we want and what we don't know, want, our, our yes, no, and maybe this or whatever. And actually, it's incredibly hard. It takes a long time, you know, and a lot a long process, I think, to really tune in to how we feel um, and, you know, what feels safe enough for us and what feels, you know, drawing us in a positive way and, and what feels like, we don't want to go there you know when, when we're talking about the degree of trauma that most of us are holding and all of those cultural messages that are pulling us in a certain direction it, exactly. you know it, it, we need those practices <laughs> we, want, we need some practices and I guess yeah it's certainly nowadays get a lot of them from the kind of somatic world but Buddhism uh, was the first place that I came across those those practices for staying with feelings staying with uncertainty um etc mm -hmm. mm. mm -hmm. I feel that so how much and then the I think our shared um, practices in disability justice and mm. um, restorative justice remind us then how do we bring those practices into relationship and practice the things of repair, admitting harm, mm. um, coming back into relationship with one another. Um, mm. So thank you. I think you really have the compassion of reminding us of the larger context over and over again. Thank you. Um, yeah. And that's, yeah. Yeah. So on every page of these books and your books now sit in this beautiful trio on my bookshelf, mm. there's these big ideas like how free are we to determine how we experience and express our sexuality? How much is determined by the structures around us? And it's belied by the cute comics and the beautiful graphics, the depth of these questions. Mm. How do you suggest people use these books so that their rate of mind melt is sustainable? <laughs> yeah, totally. I mean, part of the part of the thinking with these books has always been that you can read the whole book cover to cover and enjoy the story. But 
you could linger on a page you know and so each page does stand alone and I guess if somebody was wanting to really engage deeply with them rather than just get that surface level kind of knowledge factual knowledge then the, the scope to, to really sit with each page and how it resonates with you um, but of course one limitation of these books is there's not really space to delve into how you'd actually go about doing that or you know to really bring practices um, into the books so that's where they do sit well with the ones that I write with Alex which are much more about how do you do that deep reflection um, and so we're, we've actually just finished writing how to understand your sexuality so once that's out at the end of the year, that would go really well. Like the sexuality graphic guide gives you the kind of overview of the knowledge. And then if you want to do that sustained kind of ex personal exploration, hopefully the, the how to understand your sexuality book gives you that, you know, that much more like set of tools for actually doing that work and activities to, to try and so on. I'm going to need a bigger bookshelf. Yeah. John Barker, thank Sorry. you so much for being here. <laughs> thank you for your generosity of spirit and your compassion of perspective. And listeners, the links will be in the show notes page. Please explore all of the offerings. There are printable zines, there are blogs galore, and then of course, these incredible graphic guides. And I really recommend that you buy them in duplicates or triplicates so you can share them share them with the young people in your life, share them with your friends that you want to have better conversations with, and then text back and forth and share screenshots of the ideas you want to explore. They will launch a million beautiful conversations for you. Meg John Barker, thank you for all you generate in this world. Thank you so much. All right. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Meg John Barker. You will find links galore in the show notes. And as you explore these resources, be in touch with us. Let us know what resonates and what you want to hear more about on future episodes of Speaking of Sex with the Pleasure Mechanics. I'm Chris from PleasureMechanics.com, wishing you a lifetime of pleasure. Cheers. Cheers.